Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this week's UFC main card. Paid Bloody Elbow Podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content if available at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here are your hosts, Bloody Elbow fight analysts Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the MMA Viva section with me, Zane Simon, and my co-host, as always, Connor Rebush. That's me. Yeah, it's him. We are coming to y'all talking about the UFC fight night in Mexico City this week, headlined by a flyweight rematch, Brandon Moreno versus Brandon Royval, part of the UFC's recent we're making fights again that didn't don't need to happen trend mm-hmm. that they've been doing. I feel like it's really just in the past two or three years. Uh, really the Endeavor ESPN years that I feel like we've gotten this whole thing of just the UFC making fights that nobody needed to see again. Who cares? Like Brandon Royval has had five fights since 2020 and they have all been rematches. Just Brandon Moreno you're actually talking about? Did I say Royval? Sorry, too many Brandons. Brandon Moreno has had five rematches since 2020. Yeah. He is he is the rematch king, and that's the real reason for this fight. They're like, well, we kind of hope Brandon Royval will be like actually good, but instead he's just pretty good. Let's let Brandon Moreno go for that uh that rematch record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not does. a compelling case for a, <laughs> for no. a matchup, to be honest. I mean, I'm happy to see this. I'm happy to see two good fighters. Sure. Uh, particularly to see Brandon Moreno fight anybody. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense as a main event. At least it's a flyweight main event. I'll take yeah. that. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're bringing him back to Mexico City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll be fun. It'll have, be great energy, but it doesn't really do anything for anyone. Moreno. Or, yeah, or anyone. Yeah. I mean, for Royval, he, I guess he gets a chance to get get one back. Sure, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Royval, we were talking about this a little bit before the show started. And if his title fight lost Alessandra Pantoja made anything clear, it's that despite a decade of MMA under his belt, and being 31 now and no longer a young man, just just a man now, just in his in his, uh, you know, before his pre middle age, post youth prime. Uh-huh. He's just not good enough to be a champion or to be an elite contender. And. Even, you know, being able to get a, like, fluky KO over Matt, or Matthews Nicolau, not even that fluky. He's dangerous. He puts a lot of tools out there. He intended to throw the knee, and it landed. For sure. But it is just 
it doesn't the way Brandon Royval wins has never been replicable results. Well, he's it's, he's just flyweight Donald Cerrone, you know. Yeah. He's going to beat a ton of guys impressively. He's going to be really tough and and flexible and and wild. And then you put him in there against a championship caliber fighter and he just gets absolutely smoked. Mhm. Like, yeah, you would never guess watching most of Donald Cerrone's fights that he would never even look remotely good in a title fight. It's true. But this is the same thing with Brandon Royfall. You see some thrilling performances. Put him in there against a championship guy. Boom. He's, he looks like trash. Yeah. He gets destroyed by them. I, I don't know. And so, yeah, Brandon Moreno... Sort of gives the pick away for this one. Yeah. <laughs> if the fact that Brandon Moreno already easily beat him once didn't give the, the prediction away, then yeah. uh, the fact that uh, Brandon Moreno has been a champion yeah. <laughs> goes Our to show. Uh, and otherwise, I guess I should say, I expect this card is not all that interestingly booked up and down, um, to be honest. Yeah. There's not actually one, there's not one fight on this that I look at and say like, oh, that's a meaningful fight. I'm glad they booked that. Even the headliners are two yeah. fights we already saw before, but I'm actually pretty happy with the results we got out of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the, the main and co-main. Well, I so, wasn't happy with the result of the co-main, but... I, I, I was happy with it, but I also felt like... Like, I never understood why that isn't a good win for Yaya Rodriguez. You know? Yeah, injuries just don't count in the uh, mind of the MMA fighter, MMA fan. You know, you put... You put you go for an arm bar, you are creating a, a chain of stressors on joints all the way up the arm. And if, if the guy's shoulder pops out, sure, the arm bar is meant to bend the elbow. Sure. But it popped out because you put the stress on the shoulder. Yeah. As part of that chain. I don't know. It sounds to me, Zane, like you're saying that you, you believe Frank Mir actually submitted Antonio Nogueira? Yeah. The okay. Kimura is meant to attack the shoulder. He broke his forearm with that uh, submission. And I think we all agree that that's a fake win that doesn't count. Are you saying you don't agree with that? I, you, man, don't make me have to give credit to Frank Mir beating Nogueira. It sounds like that's what you're doing. I mean, well, I, hold on. No, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to put the brakes on the whole show, but it sounds like you're saying you think Frank Mir beat Big Nog. Every, every, uh, you know... Every instance, every moment in time exists in its own isolation. You can't just go tying things together willy-nilly and say that one point in history is reflective of another. There are circumstances. There are, you know. A, a Rutger Hauer speech about watching Frank Mir break Big Nog's arm. <laughs> I've seen 260-pound men break each other's limbs like twigs. Yeah, yeah. There are circumstances like Frank Mir being Frank Mir and (laughs) (laughs) Antonio Nogueira being Big Nog and me being totally unwilling to ever 
legitimize that. No, no, no. Yeah. It sounds a lot to me like you think Big Nog got his arm broken by a man with a soul patch. <laughs> by one of the cherry popping. <laughs> <laughs> by the cherry popping daddies. <laughs> you think some zoot suit wearing MF broke Big Nog's arm? Is that what you're telling me, Zen? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. the point I was getting back around to <laughs> was I don't think there's one really honestly well-booked fight on this whole card that is meaningful. There are some fun scraps between guys nobody cares about, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, I'm okay with Rodriguez Ortega, but uh, I I totally see the point you're making and I yeah. just feel like those are two guys where at least at this point in their careers, it makes sense to be like, okay, well, who's still got it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm okay with it. I, I don't hate it. I'm It's fine. I'm just saying, like, you know, it, it's not – I didn't look at that, that win for Yair Rodriguez and think, oh, they have to do this again, especially not considering that Yair Rodriguez went out and beat Josh Emmett really dominantly – and Brand, or Brian Ortega went out and did nothing for two years. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I have seen Yair Rodriguez fight, and yeah. Ortega is, like, I don't... He could go and fight somebody else. It would be fine. Anyway, my point is, even given all that, I expect this to be a pretty electric fight card. Sure. Because they have put on a look. They have gone somewhere meaningful that wants a fight card and they have loaded it with local fighters. They scrounged up all the Mexicans they got for this card. And it should make for a pretty rocking atmosphere. Yeah. So I expect it'll be a lot of fun because Even with non-Mexican fighters, the Mexico City cards are always a lot of fun. Yeah, just the, just the energy. They 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 might throw a lot of trash into the octagon. We'll find mm-hmm. out. But it uh, you know, it it is a. I expect the atmosphere to be pretty electric. And they start throwing uh, trash into the octagon, and Mick Maynard stands up and starts screaming, "That's my job." That's. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but him. uh. And Moreno, Roy Vall, and Yair Rodriguez, Brian Ortega, these were fun fights the first time they did them. They'll be fun again, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they can't be rehashed. It's just, like I say, they, it feels like we're in a sort of an era with the UFC where they get to points where they just, like, well, I don't know. Why don't we just do that fight again? Yeah. You know? It really does feel half the time like the matchmakers just can't be bothered. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. This guy's available. Exactly. Just uh, one of those things I'm getting more and more. Like, we have Molly McCann versus Diana Belbita, too, Mm -hmm. recently. It's Mm -hmm. like, why? Yeah, it used to be a weird little asterisk that you're like, wait, Roger Bowling and the other guy fought each other twice? Why? Oh, it was a weird... And then you go back and you watch those and you're like, oh, those were wars. And these two guys love fighting each other and they talk about it and they want to and that's like really a core part of 
what they think of as their career identity is this series of Sam Stout and Spencer Fisher, you know? Yeah, Nick Lentz and Charles Oliveira. I mean, the thing is, I'm cool with series. Yeah, but it's usually like you want those fights to be like... Oh, I have to see that again. (laughs) That's the problem with this. Nobody saw that and was like, man, I wonder how it could go if they played it back. Or just do three more rounds of that. Like, just give us six rounds. That that was a Spencer Fisher's, you know, Sam Stout thing. It was just like, yeah, just... We need to see three more rounds of it. Book it again. That sure. was awesome. That makes it, sense. I'll, I'll put the point on it since I am supposed to be talking about this fight. Yeah. What we're saying is that, if you, in case you don't recall, in their first fight, Brandon Moreno briefly outboxed Brandon Royval and then took him down, absolutely crushed him positionally on the ground en route to a really... Um, well, I suppose, I guess, is that the reason they're running it back? Because, yeah. because there was an injury? <laughs> so Pretty it's much. Fake. I he guess. Was, he was dominating him on the ground. I mean, he it was. was. And that's another he, one of those cases, too, where I would argue, like, yeah, okay, Brandon Royville got injured, but he got injured trying to scramble through back body locks. Yeah. That, like, he got injured because he was getting out grappled. He was getting crushed. And, yeah. um, yeah, even more so than the Rodriguez Ortega one. That was not. It, it, that was a a freak injury, which wasn't that wasn't that freakish, and came en route to an otherwise pretty easy looking win. Yeah. Um, and given that it was the takedown and the top control that instantly made Royvo look like oh, not a contender. Mm-hmm. Uh, combined with the fact that we just saw his last fight against Alexandre Pantoja. Guess which part of his game hasn't gotten better? Yeah. The takedown defense. It has. So, hole's still there. We already saw it. Brandon Moreno is the pick. pick. Yeah. Like, Roy Ball is still a fighter who, when he is firing and dangerous, he's crashing the pocket. He is absolutely meeting you face-to-face, you know, dick-to-dick to to, uh, (laughs) paraphrase Sean Strickland. Um, Because that's apparently the the right where his mind goes. But uh, first he's given props to Frank Mir. Now he's talking about Sean Strickland's dick. Yeah, yeah, I know. Jesus Christ, get a hold of yourself. I already have I have a hold of myself. That's why we don't do the show on video anymore. <laughs> but uh, like he he will always crash the pocket, and and when he did against Brandon Moreno, Moreno just body locked him and took him down. Yep, every single time, especially because Royval would then spin, and none of these habits have been boiled out of Brandon Royval's game. The only one that's probably less there than it used to be is that he used to be the one who would initiate the grappling. Yeah, his whole ma- process of maturing, as as, I, as he probably sees it, uh, has been to do slightly less. Yeah. To push slightly less. But he hasn't actually apparently improved any of the actual techniques. Yeah. So he just is a sort of a, if anything, a less effective version of the guy he was. The, I think the only thing that makes this remotely interesting is the very real possibility that Brandon Moreno 
may be too bored to do the exact same thing again that he did last time. Yeah. That Brandon Moreno may want to put on a show. Yeah. And if he does that, then he can kickbox with Royval and he can outbox Royval. But I'd still pick him if I knew he was going to box the whole fight. Yeah. Yeah. I would still pick him too. But Royval does throw a lot. Yeah. And he landed some shots on, on, on Moreno in their first fight. And Yep. You know, we've seen Moreno get wobbled by stuff and you know, I just, think he, he's never been knocked out. So I still have to pick him. Yeah. But I do get the vibe that he probably spent a lot of his lifetime chin points in the Figueredo series. Yes. Yeah. Like Cause their first fight, Figueredo couldn't even dream of hurting him. Yeah. Their, their second to last fight, Moreno was getting wobbled all over the damn place. Yeah. So I, I certainly think Royville has a puncher's chance in that mm-hmm. kind of fight. Mm-hmm. But you have to pick Moreno no matter where the fight goes. Yeah, absolutely. Odds on the fight, Moreno opened at minus 239. It's currently down minus 275. Royval opened at plus 208. It's currently at plus 236. All right, that brings us to Yair Rodriguez, Brian Ortega. And clearly a much more competitive fight before Ortega's injury. Mm-hmm. I am interested to see if this goes different than it did the first time. Yeah, that's that's why I'm more okay with this. And it's yeah. still, despite the result, it feels like the it, that that may very well not happen again. It's very much up in the air. It it very well may not. I am though, just kind of also. I, I kind of feel like Yair Rodriguez moved on from that and had bigger things. Yeah. And Brian Ortega is just in a point where we just need to know, does he exist anymore? Mm-hmm. You know, he hasn't fought for two years. Is there still a, is there still a title contender out there named Brian Ortega? Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess no, but that doesn't mean he couldn't still have a competitive fight with Yair to me. Yeah. Yeah. Rodriguez is the kind of dude who, if he's not stopping you, will let you compete with him. Absolutely. He is, although that's been getting better. I will say like Josh Emmett had a whole round and a half to fight. Yeah. Rodriguez. And he didn't get a whole hell of a lot done. He was sort of stopping Josh Emmett the whole time. <laughs> to be yeah. Fair. He was sort of. That's what I'm saying is that like Josh Emmett didn't get a whole hell of a lot done in the time. Yeah. Oh, I, mean, I see what you're saying, though. He was stopping he was him like all the getting way through. Hurt, yeah. Like constantly yeah. in that fight. I mean, so it was sort of the way I in that frame, sort of just a protracted finishing sequence. Yeah. He was just getting his shit ruined by body kicks the entire fight. But uh, it also, you know, it felt like for Brian Ortega, that body lock takedown he got on Yair Rodriguez in their first fight Mm -hmm. really was a saving grace for him because he was trying, he was spending a lot of time out at the distance because Ortega, he's kind of got the classic, he's got a very classic MMA habit of wanting to reset to range all the time Mm -hmm. throw a combination reset to range land a good shot reset to range just always 
you know, I can picture him in my, my in my head, him like retucking his gloves. Just like, oh yeah, I landed something. Okay, step back, mm-hmm. adjust the gloves, and then go back in. And when he did that against Yair Rodriguez, he would just get kicked really hard mm-hmm. all the time. And he was able to crash in and get that body lock takedown. He had to fight really hard for it. And then he got hurt. And, uh, you know, that body lock takedown suggests there's something there for Brian Ortega. Mm -hmm. Certainly. But Ortega's also the kind of grappler. He's always been, as a grappler, he's been best when he is making you fall into him. Mm -hmm. Like, you look at... What are the submissions Brian Ortega has gotten over his career? And he's a very good submission grappler. I'm not saying that there couldn't be something, you know, something else in there. But it is the guillotine and the triangle. And a uh, no contest rear naked choke for a failed drug test. But that's otherwise. He he can make those things happen from top position. The guillotine he almost got Volk with wasn't a. uh... That's true. One of them, at least, wasn't a uh, guard pull guillotine. He had to hit a takedown. That's true. That's true. It, it could so it could happen. And yeah, Rodriguez is certainly wild enough to make to to allow those things to happen. But yeah, also is pretty hard to submit. It's actually never happened before. Mm-hmm. No, you beat him on the ground by positionally dominating him and then beating his ass. Yeah. You break his spirit. You, you you don't catch him in a sub. And I, I kind of feel like Ortega would try pretty quickly to catch him in a sub and oh, transition yeah. to that and not really just be happy to sit on Rodriguez. Rodriguez would scramble away. At which point I just kind of got the feeling of a fight where, yeah, Rodriguez gets to do a lot of range kickboxing. And yeah where Brian Ortega is constant, even with moments of success is constantly resetting back to Yair's range and getting outstruck. Yeah. Yair is just so much faster than Ortega. Yeah. I mean, that's the real killer uh, at range is not only does, does Yair have just a more diverse skill set, but um, as a striker, I mean, but he's, he's way faster also has to be said to reports are out there i can't verify these i'm just reading what uh people have said who are who are paying attention a couple you know a couple of them are actually pretty reasonable brian ortega apparently did his whole camp in california and just showed up during fight week mm. to mexico city we must always keep the elevation in mind and That's a good point if that's the case, like Mexico City is a killer for that. And yeah, Rodriguez is there is no way in hell he will not be prepared to push a pace for 35 minutes at elevation. I have, We've seen Yair gas once. And it was in the first fight with Jeremy Stevens. Where was that? Yeah. That was... In that might have been Mexico City, actually. That was, I believe, Mexico City. That was Mexico City. Has he fought so, there since? Uh, 
probably that might have been the last time the UFC went to Mexico City. Feels like it, right? But wait, no, the first fight with Jeremy Stevens, we didn't see him gas. That fight ended in 15 seconds with an the eye. Second, the second fight. Sorry, sorry. Okay, yeah, that fight was... That was in Boston. In Boston. So that was at sea level. Yeah. That was just a particularly insane fight. I got to say, though, with a, with a good bit of grappling, I think that's part yeah. of what gassed Yair. Yeah. We know from other fights, he can do the goofy, inefficient striking thing forever. Yeah. And even with a lot of grappling, like in the Max Holloway fight pushed a really hard pace, didn't slow down. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just a freak thing. He doesn't gas, is your is your point. I'll allow you to make that point. Please continue. Yeah, so he doesn't gas, and Brian Ortega didn't do his camp at Mexico City, and Yair doesn't get submitted. So I got to just kind of take the idea that Yair Rodriguez will probably put him, be in a bad position yeah. At some point, pretty early in this fight, and if he survives it, I've got to pick him to win. Yeah, the the matchup is interesting because uh, mostly because it, uh, Brian Ortega is also incredibly tough. Yep. Uh, another reason the injury felt so very unsatisfying is like you you kind of had the feeling otherwise Brian Ortega was not getting finished. Yeah, that's true. Because he, he doesn't. Yeah, I certainly didn't expect him to get arm barred or submitted. Yeah. And then if he didn't get submitted, then, yeah, I'm not going to pick. Like, I'm just going to assume he's going to walk through damage for as many rounds as it takes. Yeah. So, so that's the thing that makes the fight interesting. Yeah. And, and, and only combined with the fact that Ortega is a very resourceful, creative, determined fighter. He mm-hmm. may not have a really good process for getting to his killer ideas but he's got quite a few killer ideas in his game he does he does and he will push and he will go for it and he can put as good a fighter as alexander volkanovsky in more than one really scary spot even in a fight that he was otherwise completely losing yeah you know and he could take such a beating that he gets as great a fighter as alexander volkanovsky to gas by the end of the fight yeah from from whooping brian ortega as hard as he can and uh, and Brian just doesn't go away. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, the, the shape of the fight looks like it just automatically favors Yair. He's so much more fluid at range, even if he's not really a great textbook technician on the feet. He has gotten so much more comfortable yeah. uh, with the last few years of experience, and he's way faster than Ortega. Yep. And Ortega constantly gives range. He constantly resets back to the edge of the pocket and then looks to stock in again. That is just... Yeah, and Ortega's... Of his rhythm. Yeah, he he made it look really good, I think largely due to style matchup reasons, when he fought uh, Chan Sung Jung. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, um, you always tend to really notice the the Kamaru Usman-ness yeah, of his striking, it's so it's clear when you watch that it augments his slowness by being a skill learned late in life. Yeah, it just he still has to think about it as he's doing it. It doesn't mm-hmm. flow, and so there's a lot of telegraphs even on his like jabs. Um, yeah, but he's tough, and and anytime it goes to the ground, he's going to be extremely dangerous, and he's going to keep pushing the pace on the feet too, and. Yeah, I, I think it'll be a good fight. It'll be a good fight. These will bo- these will both be good fights. They're just 
you know, it, they were fights that ended reasonably and the fighters, it just feels like we're going to see the same thing again. Yeah, whether, they were whether, both fairly one-sided the first time around. Yeah. And even if we, they don't end up with injuries this time around, I just don't think they're going to end with the the loser suddenly capturing a win. Mm-hmm. Odds on this one. Rodriguez opened at minus 161. He's currently at minus 154. Ortega opened at plus 144. He's currently at plus 137. Yeah, I get it that it was a little bit of a mystery, so there has to be some enigma left in the betting line, but mm-hmm. I feel like Rodriguez could be a bigger favorite here. I'm kind of surprised he isn't, especially with the idea, too, that uh, Ortega didn't do his camp at altitude. Mm-hmm. And with betting sharps being like really loving X factors as a. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen Ortega gas either. True. But, but uh, yeah. Has he ever fought at uh, high altitude like that? I don't know. Denver, maybe. He seems like a guy who's been to Denver. Um, I'm wikiing. Actually, I already have wiki up. What am I doing? Okay. Ortega has fought at... Uh... We're going to say no. He has never fought at altitude, ever. He has fought exclusively... In California, Las Vegas, then he had one fight in New Orleans, one fight in Toronto, and one fight in Abu Dhabi as sea level, as sea level. Oh, and one fight in Elmont, New York. Literally every (laughs) New Orleans, Abu Dhabi, (laughs) and Long Island. Next fight coming up in the Netherlands. So he has literally <laughs> never fought at altitude and did not train at altitude for this fight. Yeah. That is, he, he at that point, that actually has to be a massive red flag. He, does he does he live in the valley? Because it would be really funny if he actually preferred to train below sea level. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what effect it's going to have, but it is very good that you pointed that out uh, as early in the show as you did, because it's something to keep in mind for basically every single fight on this card. Yeah, there, there's a, I'll see if I can find it, but there's a thread that popped up on Twitter the other day saying where everybody trained. And uh, it was helpful. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, OK, shit. I have I have I have reasons to have doubts. I mean, oh, we actually have a few random stats here, so I'll, I'll, I'm going to find this where everybody trained thing because uh, it's just a minute back in my Twitter. And we have some stats here uh, that our producer helpfully supplied to us that for the card in general, which has two ranked fights, four ranked fighters, 15 fighters coming off a loss. It's a fight night. You see, mm-hmm. loves to... Uh, make that their fight night methodology and uh, 12 contender series alumni. That is now just what the UFC is. Yep. And three tough alumni because tough is fading into the background as fast as imaginable. 
one debuting fighter only, but six combate alumni because it's uh, packed with the Latino talent. But uh, all right. So here's the other thing. Uh, no athlete on this card routinely trains out of Mexico City anymore, apparently. So nobody is training there year round. But Brandon Moreno, Eric Silva, Claudio Puelles have been in uh, Puebla for weeks at uh, 2,100 meters. Mexico City is 2,250 meters. Okay. Elevation. Royval started in Colorado. Brian Ortega at sea level in LA. Yair Rodriguez and Raul Rosas at Centro, Centro Ceremonial Otomi in the state of Mexico at 3,000 meters. Mm. So Yair Rodriguez and Raul Rosas both training at 3,000 meters at high elevation. Moreno, Eric Silva, and Claudio Puelles training at the fight elevation, more or less. Daniel Zellhuber, Manuel Torres, Luis Ronaldo Rodriguez have been training in Mexico City for a few weeks, all training together. Francisco Prado in the state of Mexico, and Ricky Tercios has been in Mexico City for a few weeks as well. Okay. Chris Dunk. By and large, most fighters are aware and have really tried to prepare for it. Chris Duncan got there in the last week. Hmm. Sam Hughes came out a little bit earlier. Faris Ziam has been in Mexico City for two weeks. And the four Entrum gym fighters, Haragi, Quinones, Chires, and Aguilar, have been in Mexico City for six weeks. Hani Barcelos got to Mexico City early fight week. That's it. Mm. And then Mateus Mendonca got here also during fight week with Daniel Lacerda and Felipe Dos Santos. Dennis Bondar trained at Jackson Wink at 1,600 meters, so at, alt- at a reasonable altitude. And Mohamed Naimov was training in Denver at a reasonable altitude as well. So there you go. Caution notes for Hani Barcelos, Sam Hughes... And uh, potentially Mendonca, Lacerda, and Felipe Dos Santos. Mm. And for Brian Ortega. All right. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Let's jump over then. Daniel Zellhuber, Francisco Prado. And uh, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, I... uh... I recall a certain co-host casting doubt on my uh, expectations for Daniel Zellhuber. Yeah. I, I had name my... any name. Oh, it was you. Okay. I was yeah, going to yeah. give you your anonymity, but show your ass if you must, sir. <laughs> you know, it was, it was me or the wall. So somebody had to step forward. <laughs> You're going to get the wall. If you keep up like you have on this week's episode. Um, yeah, but, uh, I gotta say, um, despite, uh, the, just the warm, wonderful feeling of vindication I got when he did go in there and beat Lando Venata, mm-hmm. he is still the kind of guy that Connor Rebush would take a liking to. 
you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, like, inconsistent. Yes. Yes. Maybe doesn't like has some things that look really promising, but doesn't really under, seem to understand why, mm-hmm. uh, or, or or have a way of fitting those cool moves into a really cohesive game. He is, I think, a sort of a lion heart. Yeah. To use uh, Phil McKenzie's terminology, like he he does seem like a guy who sort of has to figure out how to win a fight again. Every over time. the course of every fight he has. Yeah. Yeah. I that, I think a lot of it for him is honestly just being so insulated by his reach. Yes, for sure. That somebody every time and not high paced that high paced either, at least not to my recollection unless Definitely I'm just, not. He he starts very slow, especially. Yeah. So every fight he's in is a fight where he is expecting to be insulated by his reach and his opponent finds their way through his reach and starts hitting him. And he has to then refigure out his distance and how to fight behind his reach. Yeah. Boy, saying, you like you got to watch this fight with Christos Diagos right now, just while I'm talking, jump to three minutes, 40 seconds of the first round. Mm-hmm. You will see a prime example of what you're talking about which is also very funny because what, what happened in that fight was Christos Diagos. He's got nothing except speed really as a striker. He's uh-huh. explosive, but early on in that fight, he just did what he was bound to do. Try to crash through the limits of Zell Huber's range and just blitz after him. Let's see. I'm pulling it up here. <laughs> three minutes, 20 seconds. He said three minutes, 40 seconds. Oh, three minutes, 40 round. seconds. And Zell Huber, yeah, doesn't get his jab online quick enough. Again, as you said, it's slow, uh, particularly in the early stage of the fight, low output. So he just sort of steps straight back, and Yagos comes after him throwing the silliest punches you've ever seen and hurts yeah. him, like, more than, more than once. He really rattles him. Uh, yeah, tell me, tell me how you feel about Drinkus Duplessis-esque. Yeah, I mean, Giacos has always been kind of that kind of fighter, too. Great athlete, just no actual yeah. technical base to his game. Yeah. And, yeah, just Zell Huber is out there kind of waiting and picking, and Giacos... Oh, wait, no, I'm... Let's see. Oh, there we go. I, yeah. I had to get... It took me a minute to... Uh, I went to 3 minutes 40 seconds in the video and not 3 minutes and 40 seconds in the fight. Yeah. And, yeah, he's shooting the takedown, gets inside, and just starts plugging Zell Huber. Yeah, who just, like, sprints straight backwards, like, oh, yeah. God, oh, God, oh, God, please get away from me. Yeah, th- that is th- that is a, a good read on Zell Huber. He, like, he has a great jab. He's a pretty sharp counterpuncher. Mm-hmm. When he throws in combination, he puts yep. good combinations together. He yeah. He hits the body. He works the legs. All of these are things to like. But... He just doesn't seem to realize how useful it would be to get these tools working immediately, particularly yeah, the jab. It, it takes him a while to find his timing. He, I think he, the big thing for him is that he wants to defend himself by being a counter puncher. Yes. Which and 
Yeah. Yeah. And it takes him a while to find the timing on the counter. So early on, his defense is just basically not there. And as the fight goes on, then he gets that counter lead hook going. Yeah. And then it becomes hard to crash in on him. But until that happens, he is picking and prodding. And otherwise, when you move forward, there's just nothing waiting to answer. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I think if you want to get your timing on your jab, the all-important tool for all fighters, but especially you as the tall, lanky guy. Yeah. Probably the best way to do that is by using it. Yeah, yeah. He just has a, this is what I mean, he's a he's a Rebush Chalice-ass fighter. He just, there's something off <laughs> with his yeah. process that makes his fights more interesting than they probably should be a lot of the time. Yeah. Because the talent is obvious. He probably should be out there smoking a lot of the guys he's fighting, but he can't. Yep. Um, all of that being said, what is Francisco Prado? Like 5'2"? <laughs> he's, he is 5'11 with a 69-inch reach. Man is built on Macy Barber scale. And a, and a 67-inch tall head. Yeah. <laughs> Most of that height has got to be pure skull. Right. Yeah, he he is running serious uh oh John John McDessie lines. Yeah. Uh but not I'm offended not by the comparison. Not with any of the skill, just <laughs> yeah. Just the size and shape. Yeah, he's not as completely panicky reckless as somebody like Yagos. Yeah. But he doesn't exactly have a consistent sort of oh this is like the punch i use to set things up and then i faint that and then that gets me into range and it doesn't have the process no uh of a of, of someone much better than christos yagos either no he's like um as a striker he is a pure mma striker which is to say he knows some tricks yep he does overhand rights and he knows a couple flash moves one of which got him a really shocking KO in his last fight, it has to be said. He knocked out Abman Azaitar with a spinning yep. elbow where he didn't even touch him with the elbow. Yeah. He like knocked him out with his tricep. Never mm-hmm. seen that. Um, but otherwise, yeah, the, the his whole style is just, just very unstructured, and he's significantly smaller and much shorter of arm. Yeah. Zell Huber has shown toughness and the ability to recover if he does happen to get in trouble and so once he starts guy that beat yeah. Zell Huber did it by just actually forcing Zell Huber to operate purely on his jab and his mm-hmm. kicks and to just fight a cautious range battle and he only... never yeah that's why I say the Lionheart thing he never yeah. like put it to Zell Huber and made him he never gave him that feeling that he was fighting for his life yeah, and so and I think he, just never really figured out how to make the fight. Yeah, he just lost a sparring match. But Prado is going to be much more like uh, Venata ended up and Giagos was in that fight where yeah. he's going to try to take a fight to Zell Huber that will, force Zell, that will allow Zell Huber to get the timing on his counter hook, from which point he can find his way into yeah. creating a fight that he wins. Yeah. For as long as he still has his chin and his youthful vigor, I think Zelber may be for a while 
a guy that you beat by not trying to beat him too hard. Yep. Try to just neutralize him, cool him off. And I don't think Prado has the craft to do that. No, Prado, the only reason he even looked okay in that fight with Jamie Malarkey is because he could actually make something out of Malarkey's regular wrestling attempts. Mm -hmm. When Malarkey was just being rangy and picking Prado off, it was a pretty one-sided boxing match. Mm -hmm. So... I think well, yeah, I that, remember that one. I was so pissed that Jay Malarkey kept trying to wrestle him. <laughs> yeah. Buddy, it, just jab. It's working. If Zell Huber, even if Zell Huber doesn't have Jamie Malarkey's sort of steady uh, hand when it comes to yeah. application, he is much more fit to win the fight that Jamie Malarkey won. Yeah, he's not going to, I don't even think, try to wrestle Francisco no. Prado. Why would he? Yeah. All right. Zell Hoover opens at minus 214, is currently at minus 261. Prado opened at plus 188, is currently at plus 225. All right. That brings us to a bantamweight bout. Raul Rosas Jr. versus Ricky Tercios. The battle of guys who really aren't as good as they themselves think mm. they are. Mm-hmm. And in, in Raul Rosas Jr.'s case, as much as, as good as fans think he is, in Tercios's case, just him. Um, mm-hmm. This is a really weird, awkward fight. Uh, Raul Rosas Jr. seems like he took none of the right... Oh. No. Less away from losing to Christian Rodriguez. No. He came out against Terrence Mitchell, who is, I hate to say it, he's a, you know, fellow Alaskan, so I don't want to, you know, <laughs> crap on my own people here. But he is the worst fighter in the bantamweight division. He is the least athletic least technically prepared i mean maybe not least athletic he's fast so he has some natural speed to him but he's the least technically prepared fighter in that division and he's not strong terrence mitchell yeah terrence mitchell no terrence mitchell fighting anybody looks like a kid fighting their dad yeah and Raul Rosas Jr. went out there after getting just soundly technically dominated by Christian Rodriguez Mm -hmm. and just fought really angry. And that was it. That was all he did was he just went out there and he basically just, you know, pointed to the middle of the mat and just tried to throw down with Mitchell as much as he could. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, the lesson he thought he took away from the Christian Rodriguez fight was that he needed to improve his striking. No, I don't even know if it was he needed to improve his striking. It's just that I need to fight harder. No, I, I think he said angrier. that. I think oh, he yeah, said yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, right. I, I could be misremembering, but I yeah. remember a specific feeling. I have a sense yeah. of that card when he fought Terrence Mitchell because I recall that being said. And then moments later in my memory, we see the footage of um, 
of Raul backstage just practicing single overhand rights yeah. on the mitts with his coach. <laughs> like, oh, okay. And that was the punch he used. Yeah, and it was just, <laughs> he just went out there and just absolutely went <laughs> swanging and banging and wanging with Terrence yeah. Mitchell. It's just like, man, you, you have been given a walkover opponent to... Yeah. If you want to improve your strike, like to go out and like show your craft, go try some shit out. Yeah, this no, is a guy who just cannot work stand up to you. No MMA fighters really have that, especially not young ones. Nobody yeah. is willing to make a fight. I mean, a lot of MMA fighters make fights harder on themselves than they should be, yeah. but nobody goes out there thinking they're about to do that. It, well, like as, a, as a learning experience, that is. You know, I know it. I know it's a just a cliche for us at this point, but that is a Henry Hoof thing. You do see. Yeah, I'm that. not sure that his fighters go out there with that in mind either. I thought it just happens. I don't know. I saw I, I saw Kamara Usman have a whole bunch of fights early in his career where he was just like working a one-two on guys for rounds, and it's just like. Why yeah, but I don't think in Kamar Usman's mind he's thinking I'm going to extend this fight. Yeah, I think he has a coach saying you're going to go out there and do these correct things. Yeah, but that's then that's just good coaching. Yeah, and Raul Rosas, I don't think he has that. No, but no MMA MMA fighter has the particular kind of mental fortitude I'm talking about, where you yeah. could go out like boxers do. You take a fight and you're like, okay, well this one's a walk. Yeah, so uh, let's get some work in. I'm gonna put in. I'm gonna let this guy last for eight rounds so I can play. I, I, I have occasionally heard MMA fighters talk like that after a fight, mm -hmm. but it is rare. It's rare, and and certainly a 19 year old hype uh, no. yeah. generator like Raul Rosas, he's not going to have the maturity to do that, and and indeed he did not. No. And so I just expect him to go out there against Ricky Tercios and just go bat shit. Yep. That's it. Especially with a, a Mexican crowd out there just oh, yeah. going wild. Yep. And that is like the what that is the best kind of fight for Ricky Tercios to have. Because Tercios really only thrives in the scramble. Mm -hmm. This is a fighter who has built his own striking style that is just abysmal. Once again, MMA fighters trying to reinvent the wheel, trying to innovate some awesome, yeah. very well-studied skill sets. There's lots of stomping uh -huh. and shouting. It, mm. it, he strikes the way Tony Ferguson does now. Mm-hmm. In his prime, he has chosen to strike like old Tony Ferguson, mm -hmm. where he gets hit by a shot and decides that, oh, I'm going to do all my Tony Ferguson stuff, but from two feet further away so that none of it lands and I just get hit really hard in return. Yeah. That is what Ricky Tercios is out there doing. Yeah. I based my boxing game on a Tony Ferguson who was like, when I looked at him, was halfway along the conveyor belt leading into the glue melting machine. Yeah. <laughs> to the, the hoof processor. Yes. And he, the best part of Tercios's game is then just getting in scrambles with people 
and forcing an exhausting scrambling fight with them. Yep. Which, to be fair... Which, to be fair, he will get... And it is part of why Raul Rosa's lost to Christian Rodriguez. It is. It is. He definitely gassed, and he definitely has no breaks on his extremely energy-intensive ground game. Yeah. I also just don't think that Tercios is fast enough or is controlled enough as uh, Rodriguez was. Rodriguez is very, very good. He is. All round um, is a really technically efficient fighter. Yep. And Tercios is not that at all. I, I got to pick Raul Rosas here. He's just faster. And they're both going to get into a battle of sloppy scrambling. And I just think that the faster, I got to pick the faster guy to win. Mm-hmm. That's it. Sounds fair enough to me. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. really have a lot to add. Just that, um, uh, like I said already, there's one part of the Christian Rodriguez fight that Tercios, that seems to give Tercios a shot. And it is the fact that Raul is a young man who still believes himself immortal. Yep. And has no caution or uh, patience whatsoever in his approach. Yep. Yeah, I mean, if Raul Rosas goes out there fighting at this altitude, yeah, I know he trained, they both trained at good altitude and all that, so it's not like they didn't prepare for it, but if he just goes out there and pushes himself to the absolute limit for a round, he could still just end up dead. And Tercios, being a slower athlete who is more used to having a game that survives on scrambling, is better prepared to pick up the pieces and just keep finding ways to win. Yeah. I mean, he, he he lost to Rodriguez in Miami, which is borderline uh, Brian Ortega territory. Yeah. In terms of elevation. Yeah. But but like I like I also said that that was just a part of why he lost that fight. Yeah. Because uh, he was getting absolutely cooked everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. The entire time. And uh, against Tercios, the best Tercios can hope for uh, is a brawl everywhere. Yeah. And I'll probably just pick the dynamic young man to win that. Yep. And to learn nothing in the process. Yep. Rosas opened at minus 286. He's currently at minus 232. Tercios opened at plus 243. He's currently down at plus 198. I got to say, I was not aware that Raul Rosas had a, a nickname. Now that I know that it's apparently El Nino Problema. Which sounds like fake Spanish to me. It, 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 <laughs> yeah. That's really how you say problem child. Is that even a saying in Spanish? Does seem like, like, you it's know, a bar- it's a borrowing from English, surely. Yeah. Like usually. It, it'd be nin- Nino Problemacito. Or problematico. Well, that's little. The ito means it's diminutive. Yeah. So that's like calling somebody a little cutie. Yeah. Yeah. I my don't little, know. My little problem child. There's probably, a, there, I'm sure there's a specific Spanish for it, turn of phrase for it. For a for problem child. A terrible little imp of a, yeah. a bastard. Yeah. What's this? It's probably closer to l'enfant terrible. Yeah. 
It reminds me of uh, when I went to Germany in high school and they did a, uh, the European cup was going on soccer and uh, you know, everyone gathers in like the town square and watches on a big projection. Pretty fun. There's cheap beer. Good time. And, but they call this event DOS public viewing, which <laughs> sounds like a joke about Germans speaking English. <laughs> Something really uncanny about that, that uh, combination of words. El Nino Problema cannot possibly be a real Spanish yeah. phrase. It sounds like a Midwesterner thinking they're speaking Spanish. Let's see. Yeah, let me get a Nino Problemo and uh, Huevos Rancheros. Thanks. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm actually finding out here. Oh, well, let's see. We don't, we don't need the full linguistics break. Yeah, so it'd be Mal, Mal uh, like Malcriado or mm -hmm. Travieso. Malcriado, essentially meaning misbegotten. Yeah. Mal, malborn. Mischievous. Nice. Travieso. Like, yeah. Malcriado, that's a good word. Let's see, or uh, let's see, yeah. I'm probably going to end up saying some like really terrible, like. <laughs> yeah. Doing the linguistic version of Job's chicken dance uh, on yeah. Arrested Development. Highly offensive in Mexico. Yeah, ma Macriado is, seems to be the common. Nice. So that would have been actually cool. Obviously means misbegotten, which is yeah. itself a cool word. That is that would be a cool nickname for Rosas Jr. Malcriado, yeah, yeah, yeah. El on, no problema just seems fake. Real. <laughs> <laughs> it seems fake. Yeah. Anyway, um, last fight on the main card. No, God, there's two more. There's two more. What? Well, they're pretty quick. Yasmin Hargi, Sam Hughes. Um. Yeah, take it away. We love us some Sam Hughes. We do. We do. And I have high hopes for Yasmin Hargi. Yep. Although she has walked into a problem that uh, has been, it had been creeping in the edge of her game, and I had been willing to dismiss it because most women just don't hit that hard at uh -huh. 115 pounds. Yep. But it does have to be talked about that she tends to get hurt early in every single fight. Yep. And she is a fighter who very much, I think, starts cold and starts fast at the same time. Yeah. She is our classic slow starting fighter with no caution. Yeah. The uh, Frank the Crank being mm -hmm. like the most prime candidate of that kind of guy out mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Often Where? Donald Cerrone, another Donald second Cerrone, Donald another, Cerrone mentioned, yep. but that was his thing too. And Tony Ferguson. Yep, yep. Sometimes it works really well. You just uh, yep. manage to push through, you create chaos, and then the chaos reminds you how you're supposed to fight and warms you up. Yep. And the opponent doesn't even get a chance to think about how they're going to, but 
sometimes you just get absolutely slapped because somebody just straight up walks up to you and you do not have the wherewithal to be like, I'm going to step backwards. Yeah. And that's what happened. Denise Gomes yep. just, he's literally just stepped up to Hawurigi who stood there watching her through her guard and just got clubbered with a right hand. Yep. That was all that happened. That was the entire fight. And yeah, she's, she's a, probably a bit chinny. Um, but more than that, Gomes hits really hard and, and you're right. She starts stilted and uh, yeah. awkward and kind of has to find her rhythm over the course of the first yeah, round. I mean, you see her late in fights and she absolutely is yeah. not skinny at all. She will eat everything. She once she's comfortable. She's got to find a rhythm. She has to relax and settle in Yeah, and find a flow. And, um, yeah, I mean, fortunately for her, Sam Hughes is n- unfortunately for Howard Gay, Sam Hughes is a fighter who will push really, really hard the entire fight. Yep. Fortunately for Howard Gay, she's not particularly dangerous. She doesn't have the coordination to be a big puncher. No, no. That's really it. Like the physicality might be there, but the speed, the raw speed and the coordination, it's not really there. And I believe Sam Hughes is the same kind of fighter, mm-hmm. a, a, an, an incautious slow starter who just does the better version of that because she's, she tries to press right away. Yeah. yeah. Like if we're both going to be uncomfortable, at least I'm going to have the initiative and make you react. Mm-hmm. But I have to say it sent a chill through my very blood, Zane, when you mentioned Sam Hughes's name on the list of fighters who did not train at altitude. Yeah, because that's Hughes's whole thing is she keeps pushing. And I I tremble to think of a Sam Hughes fight where she gasses. I think it would ruin her entire game. Yep. She is not does not. She's a pace fighter, does not have a style that'll work well if she's forced to slow down. Um, I don't know if that'll be the case or not. I mean, she has always had tremendous cardio. But it's the fact that it's such an important part of her process um, that makes me particularly cautious about picking her here. There's also the fact that she's super hittable, and even if yep. Odegi starts slow, um, she is going to have a very upright, stiff, telegraphing target in front of her for as long as she is at range. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, Howard both Gies, these, mm-hmm. I would say both these fighters are going to start slow in round one. Haragi is the fighter who, by round three, looks like a title contender. Exactly. Yeah. Sam Hughes, by round three, looks like a pretty good fighter. Yeah. You know? Like, she could a, be borderline a, a long time. Yeah, a long time. Looks like a long-term gatekeeper. Yeah. Haragi, round three, Yasmin Haragi, you're like, oh, wow, this woman could fight for a belt someday. Yeah. Oh, I can picture her left hooking Zhang Wei Li and yeah. it working really well. Yeah. So I'm going to take Howdagi. Uh, if Hughes's cardio does hold up and she can get take advantage of another Howdagi slow start early enough, it's not impossible that she just kind of doesn't let her into the fight. Yeah, or that she wins one and a half rounds and then yeah, you're yeah. arguing over a split. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, I think Haragi wins round three. For but sure. that doesn't mean Sam Hughes can't win round one. Just hold that, hold Hargy to the cage, or take it a takedown in round one, 
and then press her on the fence for the second round. And halfway through, Hargi starts to, like, pick up the pace and land some shots. And you're like, I don't know who won that. And then Hargi runs away with the third round. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're just looking at a really hard fight to score. Could happen. Mm -hmm. I still got to pick Hargi. I think if anybody's going to have a round where they dominate, it's probably going to be Hargi. And if you're looking at a fight like that where... Nobody's getting finished, and who's gonna win? You're got, you got. We've learned over time. You've got to pick the fighter you expect to have the dominant round. Yeah. Yeah. Who's gonna get the big moment? Yeah. So, I gotta pick Haragi here, and yeah, the the cardio is a concern because how how is Haragi's takedown defense? Uh. Let me see. She has faced. It is one hundred percent right now. Yeah, having, but I mean, but that's having. She faced three. No, she faced no takedowns that fight. She stopped two takedowns from Yasmin Lucindo. Lucindo, who's not a wrestler. Yeah, and that's it. So that's it. Uh, I mean, I think she. My recollection of watching her is that she does the right things. Mine too. But uses. She's getting better at all that kind of stuff all the time. And, so. and with the pressure, it makes the takedowns easier to get if you're yeah. forcing Howdy to keep that high guard of hers up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it just hasn't been tested at a very high level. So no. Could I, I think this 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 is this is I think a pretty well booked fight. It's really just the not yeah. Sam Hughes not preparing at elevation that concerns me. Yeah, and her camp is in Dallas too, so it's not like. Oh, that, but she's at, you know, training in Colorado or, or Big Bear or something like that. So. Mm-hmm. All right. That brings us to oh, the odds on the fight. Hargi is a big favorite here. Opened at minus 346, is currently at minus 493. Hughes opened at plus 289, currently at plus 390. I'd love to see Hughes make this a really tough fight. Mm-hmm. I think she's one of those fighters who she had such a rough run early in her UFC career mm-hmm. that people did not really understand how raw she was when she got to the UFC. Like this is a woman who, you know, she she had some amateur experience, but she turned pro. She's 31 now. She started train fighting as an amateur in 2016. I don't think she did any martial arts before that at all, mm-hmm. probably. So that's just, you know, her in her mid-20s starting to train. And she turned pro in 2019. So that's just five years ago. And got to the UFC in 2020. Yeah, she'd had five fights. A year and a half later. And fought Tisha Torres in her debut. And then Loma Lukbunmi. And then Luana Pinheiro, who may not be a longtime fighter, but is a longtime judo practitioner. Mm -hmm. And like she's just had to go through fire all the way. And she's gotten consistently better. Like she is very clearly Mm -hmm. determined to put in the work and has a good camp behind her. And it's just gotten better every fight. And lately it's, you know, she's three and one in her last four and it all feels like a product of hard work. Mm -hmm. 
So I always like rooting for her and would love to see her put in a, a quality performance here where she's yeah. just a lot tougher than expected. You know, she's essentially tough because she clearly thrives under the coaching of Saif Saud. Yeah. I was about to compare him to, it was going to be like, oh, he's, he's like our new Rafael Cordero. And that he turns out all these uh, uh, aggressive uh, round winning fighters. But, um, Cordero is nice. Yeah. <laughs> Sife Soud's a dickhead. Remember he was yelling at Jeff Neal for continually dapping Ian Gary in their fight. Mm-hmm. He was yelling at him in, with the tone of somebody who has just walked in to see their dog taking a dump on the rug. Yeah. Yeah. And it's no. like the dog is looking in his no. eyes, not to go full Ian Gary here with the whole talking too much about dog yeah. shit. But <laughs> that's how Saif Saud was yelling at his fighter. Yeah, they didn't they didn't show it, but between rounds, he actually hit Jeff Neal with a with a rolled up newspaper. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Normally they uh, will put a damp cloth on your head, but he just squirted him in the eyes with a spray bottle. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Directly in the eye. He's, he's like leaning over the cage from cage side, spraying him every time he like reaches out to fist bump. <laughs> Uh, don't you touch his head but Sam Hughes is the kind, the kind of person clearly who thrives with that kind yeah. of pressure and like yeah, yeah we, we just love watching her fight because she's so gritty and she went through absolute hell to start her UFC career and spent that time learning lessons yeah it's just which so many equally inexperienced fighters fail to do yeah all right that brings us to a lightweight bout, Manuel Torres, Chris Duncan. And uh, one of the other fighters who did not train at elevation, Chris Duncan. Yeah. This is, I mean, and that's, that's too bad because this is a very winnable fight for him. Mm-hmm. It has slobber knocker vibes all over it. Mm-hmm. And Duncan is a big step slower than Manuel Torres, which is a big problem. But he also very clearly is taking some good cues away from American top team mm-hmm. that he's been working with lately. And he looked a lot better in his last fight. No question. Just way more patient, way more willing to pick his spots way more willing to let opportunities come to him where his power then can make a big difference and to open, take whatever opportunities are open rather than trying to force them. Like this is a dude who, you know, you watch him against Charlie Campbell back on his contender series bout. And it is just two dudes hoping and praying that one of them doesn't get knocked out first. Same thing with his fight against Borshow when he fought uh, the first time on the Contender Series. Mm-hmm. He just would go out there and just swing and hope. And uh, Ash, a fight against Yanal Ashmuz, a very fast, very solid, very powerful fighter. Duncan just went out there and picked him apart. Yeah, Part of that was he broke his arm, mm-hmm. but he still just went out there and picked him apart. Yeah, I also uh, suspect that part of it um, 
not to discredit the idea of a fighter getting better, which we always love to see. I suspect that part of it was that uh, Yanal Ashmose is small. Yeah. And all the guys, Chris Duncan, Chris Duncan is, he's not as uh, short and stocky as he looks. Because he's like all shoulders. Yeah. Uh, but all the guys he was fighting before that, basically, Campbell, Morales, um, he looked, I think, especially awkward because he just was outranged by them both. Yeah. Which would be a, could be a problem against Torres, except of course that Torres doesn't throw anything long, except no, kicks. no, yeah. Torres throws front kicks and then short hooks. He's the kind of fighter that you could be a foot away from him and he will throw that hook eight inches. Like, yeah, he is. I mean, it's all power. So if he hits you, it is. You know, he's really turning into those shots. Sure, but. He really short arms himself on his punches. You know? Mm-hmm. <sighs> I think. I don't know. I want to pick Duncan just for his ability to potentially fight with a process mm-hmm. and Torres just complete recklessness. And everything Torres does is just let me fall into you and trade and see what happens. But the altitude is a concern, mm-hmm. and the size is a concern. I'm going to go with Duncan anyway. I'm going to trust. I, I just don't like anything about. Tor- I, I, I feel like every Torres fight is just sort of him, you know, getting getting into a brawl and walking out of it lucky to get his hand raised. And I think Duncan is just a little bit too good in a brawl for that. He thrives a little too much there. He can get slept and he very well might, but I don't think Torres is as clean as Borchot. And Certainly not. Uh, I think that Duncan, I think Duncan has just looked a little, he's looked calm lately. So I'm going to roll with it. Yeah. I am very much torn. I'm torn Um, too. I I, I do think Duncan, uh, I I mean, I, I, I can't think it was entirely, oh, I'm fighting a short guy. Yeah. Um, because it was calmer. Yeah, it was overall a different sort of approach and attitude he had in that fight. He, as you said, he really did go in there looking like he intended to to pick Ashmos apart to yeah. hit him with jabs, let him let him overreach and walk into counters. It was just that that was made easier by the size, yeah, of the opponent. Torres is not that. I mean, as you say, he doesn't uh, doesn't use his length. Um, there will still be a height discrepancy to deal with, but it well, is the, the actually taller. I think. No, they're the same height. Same height. Okay. See, this is the thing with builds. Torres just looks yeah. taller than Duncan. He looks taller. He's got a two-inch reach advantage, but he, yeah, he doesn't use it. Yeah. But I am concerned about the elevation and Torres's style. Like, I just he, don't think this. I think this is only going to go around. Yeah. You know. 
I mean, Chris Duncan's fights often drag on. What's the longest Manuel Torres fight? Uh, longest Manuel Torres fight. <laughs> round one, round one, round one, round one. Split decision. Yeah. He's had <laughs> Classic. A split decision somewhere in there. Classic for a guy who only wins in one round <laughs> to yeah. have his only decision be a split. And then uh, two, and then two submission losses. Two instantaneous submission losses. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'll take Duncan. I just don't like the idea of Torres just throwing a whole mess of shit at him. Yeah. And just barging in. I mean, like, he fights that way because he is used to people just folding under the completely stupid pressure he puts on. Yeah. And Duncan's not going to fold immediately, but if he tires and Torres is still there. If Duncan gets tired after a round and Manuel Torres does not, then this fight is over and it's Manuel Torres. But I'm going to pick Duncan just because... Uh, yeah, I'll side with you. But I would hate to be fatigued against a guy like Manuel Torres. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. We're making a kind of silly pick. I just think Torres is heading for a knockout loss. It hasn't happened yet in his career. But yeah. I just can't escape the feeling that he's walking straight into something to hard shots sooner or later. And that Duncan seems like the kind of guy who can do it. Yeah. Torres is just a purely reckless fighter. He is so reckless. Torres is the favorite here. Opened at minus 118. Is currently minus 176. Duncan opened at plus 107. Is currently plus 157. I, f- I feel like it's the kind of fight where Torres could feel stupid because he could have extended this fight and Duncan would have gotten exhausted. Mm. But he just went out there, charged at him, and just started wanging the book. <laughs> yeah. And got slept. That's kind of what I feel like is going to happen. Yeah, that's what he does. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcasts and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey Not the Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection Main Card and Prelims UFC Preview Shows, the Sixth Round Post Fight Show, the Show Money Podcast, and the MMA Depressed Us.